In our text this morning in Ecclesiastes, we find Kohelet is still reflecting on the problems and the vanity surrounding money and possessions. And last week we were at the end of chapter 5, and the very end of that chapter, there's a short section on, on reflecting on what is good and fitting uh, in light of all the problems with wealth and possessions. And in, in that little section from verse 18 to verse 20 of chapter 5, we saw a glimpse of kind of the ideal of what would be good and right. But now in chapter 6, he's come full circle back again to the problems and the vanity that he sees in real world experience when it comes to money, to wealth, and to possessions. Now in the last chapter, we saw that money doesn't bring fulfillment and that money is unreliable. Those were a couple of the problems with uh, wealth that Kohelet observes. And, and with that, it's likely to bring huge disappointments to the person who loves wealth and looks to wealth and material things to be a source of fulfillment or security. But now in chapter 6, and is kind of in a similar vein, but essentially the message here is telling us that wealth cannot bring a man to the purpose and the goal of his existence. And if we recall from the very beginning of an, in our study of Ecclesiastes, this is really kind of the driving force to the whole book of Ecclesiastes, and that question that drives Kohelet in his investigation of reality. Because back in chapter 1 and verse 3, for example, he says, what does man gain by all his toil? And that same question in, in slightly different forms is repeated at certain points throughout the whole first half of Ecclesiastes. And it looks towards some purpose, some meaning, some ultimate good. What, at the end of the day, in the big picture, in the great analysis of all reality, what is the good? What do we get? What is the purpose? What is it all about? Well, it assumes we were made for something, and indeed man was made for an end. We kind of know that inherently. We know, as Christians from Scripture, we were made for God. But man has this inherent sense that there's got to be some purpose. There's got to be an end we're after. And I think the sense of that is, is reflected in the question that people sometimes consider and sometimes vocalize. We say, how do I know when I've arrived? Right? If you Google that question, do a quick web search, you find there's a lot of people trying to answer that in different ways. How do I know I've arrived at something? How do I know when I've reached the goal? How do I know when I'm done striving, laboring, and looking forward, and I've actually come to whatever it is? Which, of course, begs the question, what is it? In its broadest form, and of course people ask that question in different contexts, but in its broadest context, it's a question that looks at the big picture, and it's seeking a purpose and a goal towards which life must be oriented, and some final destination we hope to get to. And part of the problem that Kohelet is perceiving, I think, here in Ecclesiastes is related to the fact that far too often folks conceive of the answer to that question in terms of money or worldly successes. 
So, for example, somebody might have in their mind, you know, here, here's the answer. It's when I've paid off my mortgage, paid off all my kids' college expenses, then I'll know I, I've, I've made it. I've gotten to the place I can just enjoy things. Life will be good. Or perhaps it is the, the, the forward-looking goal is if I can achieve the place that I can retire comfortably without having to worry about finances. Or maybe it's when I've reached this highest possible level of promotion and progress in my career. But none of those things are really the goal. And when we look at Kohelet's struggle here with the problems of wealth and toil under the sun, we get the opportunity to sort of ask these kinds of questions and and think, what is the real end? How do we get there? How do we arrive at that destination? So the first part of what Kohelet says in this chapter contemplates wealth without rest. Wealth without rest. He points to an evil that he says he has observed. I've seen this under the sun. Remember, Kohelet is using this, this paradigm of investigation that's just, these are the things I can see and observe, reasoning within my own heart and mind. So there's an evil I've seen under the sun. It lies heavy on mankind. It is the man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires, yet God does not give him the power to enjoy it, but a stranger enjoys them. And notice the contrast here with verse 19, when he had previously thought of what was really good, what is fitting, it's everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and the power to enjoy them. This is good. But now, here's somebody who has the power and the possessions, and even on top of that, he receives honor. And those things often go together, particularly in the ancient world in which Kohelet is writing here. If you have possessions and great wealth, it likely comes with honor. You're considered an important figure. So here's the man who has the wealth, the possessions, and so much so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires. And yet, what he does lack is the power to enjoy those things. One thing to take note of in, in these observations is he sees that God is behind all of this. He recognizes the providence of a sovereign God, that God is the one who gives wealth, and he is also the one who either gives or withholds the ability to enjoy that wealth. Yet from Kohelet's standpoint here of wisdom under the sun, this is vanity, this is a great evil. Because here's a man who has all these possessions, yet he can't enjoy them. Why can this man not enjoy his wealth and his possessions? I don't know, because the text just leaves it open-ended, doesn't it? It doesn't tell us why. So this could have in view some kind of unforeseen, unavoidable tragedy. Something happens, he loses everything, it all goes to someone else. Um, on the other hand, it could be a heart problem. That here's a man who has all the wealth and all the possessions and all the honor and everything he could want, but he is driven by discontent and the desire for something more, for something new, for something better, and so he's never able to really enjoy what he's already got. We saw this back in chapter 5, again in principle, when he said, he who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves his wealth with his income. 
There's an interesting illustration of this principle in an old issue of uh, the Daily Bread that tells the story of a rich industrialist who comes into a, a little fishing village and finds a fisherman sitting lazily beside his boat and says to him, why aren't you out there fishing? The fisherman's answer is simple enough. I've caught enough fish for today. Well, that wasn't simple enough for the industrialist who said, well, why don't you catch more fish than you need? What would I do with them? Well, you could earn more money. And then you could buy a better boat so you could go deeper and catch more fish. And then you could purchase nylon nets and catch even more fish. And then you'd make even more money, and pretty soon you'd have a whole fleet of boats, and you'd be rich like me. To which the fisherman responds, well, then what would I do? Oh, well, then you would sit down and enjoy life. The fisherman took a look out across the sea and said, what do you think I'm doing now? So here's this man who's seemingly blessed, especially from the Old Testament perspective, because if God blesses one with wealth and, and long life and honor, that, that, that would appear to be the blessing of God. But he has no real enjoyment of those possessions. And the writer here, is, he's contemplating and proposing this question, what good is all that wealth if you can't enjoy it? If you can't find satisfaction in it, is it really blessing? Is it not rather a great evil? And he goes on to say further in verse 3, if a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years, here again, is, these are th things that would indicate great blessing. If you've got a hundred children and, and live many years, how blessed you are. And, and, and that's not, not a bad thing, right? But in Old Testament terms, that person would really be considered blessed by God. And yet Kohelet looks past this and says, yet... If his soul is not satisfied with good things, with life's good things, he's in such a bad place, he would say a stillborn child is better off than he. In other words, it would be better for that man if he were never born. Better to never be born than to live a long life, have many children, have great wealth, have all this honor, have everything you could ever want, and yet never experience the satisfaction of good things. And he expounds this further when he talks about the stillborn child or the miscarriage. That it comes in vanity and goes in darkness. In darkness its name is covered. And never, in other words, it never consciously experienced life. It comes and goes. It's shrouded in mystery. And here is a key point that he comes to in this, yet it finds rest rather than he. There's more rest, he says here, for the stillborn child than for the man who lives all these years but can never find satisfaction in life. Even in all the things that would appear to be these great blessings from God. Kohelet, again, he can reflect deeply enough to see that these things don't necessarily make a person blessed in the end. And the kinds of things that people might strive for today and think of as great blessings and things to be achieved, they might look a little bit differently, but often it still includes things like possessions and wealth and financial success, include things like good health and a long life. And all those things are perfectly good in themselves. But they're not the real purpose, and they're not the real goal. 
And what good are they at the end of the day if a person cannot find ultimate happiness, rest, and peace? And there's one more piece of this in verse 6 as he goes on to say, even though he should live a thousand years twice over yet enjoy no good. And then the sentence kind of breaks down. As if he couldn't finish the sentence without getting distracted by yet one other thought. Do not all go to the same place. Now here's a reminder that as Kohelet continues to look at the reality under the sun, as he's looking for ultimate meaning and, and, and purpose, there's this unavoidable reality that overshadows all of man's activities that's constantly in the back of his mind, and that is the certainty of death. That the reality of death intrudes again upon his reflections here about the vanity of, of not coming to satisfaction and to enjoy good things and so on. It's kind of like on top of that, you're going to die. So in other words, the stillborn child goes straight to the grave. Now, if it were possible in this, this obviously exaggerated thing, if a man could live 2,000 years, he's still going to end up in the same place. And if he cannot come to the end purpose of ultimate rest and peace, then what's the point? Let me take this reasoning in a, a little bit more contemporary application for a minute. What if, as I think is the case for many people in our society, what if the goal that, that, that's kind of in mind, you think the ideal to which we're working here, is to reach retirement and have enough money to retire from your work, to enjoy time with your family, uh, to, to, to spend time with maybe kids and grandkids and maybe some more time in your favorite hobbies? There are two questions you've got to stop and consider. One, is that ultimately going to bring you final and complete satisfaction? Will you really, really, really be fulfilled then? Number two, what good will all of that do in 50 more years when you're dead and laid in a grave? And that's kind of what Kohalid is wrestling with here. What is the destination? What does it mean to arrive? What is the purpose? I would suggest there are several words used in this chapter that come together, that complement one another and get to, to the point here. We get words like uh, satisfaction or being satisfied with good or the enjoyment of what is good. And ultimately, this word we see in verse 5, rest. That the stillborn's better off because he finds rest. Right, And that's a loaded concept theologically. You know, all the way back to Genesis, before the fall, and in the very beginning of creation, God created the heavens and the earth in six days, and on the seventh day he rested. It's not because God was tired. right? God instituted a Sabbath. God rested from his creating work to be a pattern for man that he would labor and then rest. And that very pattern from the beginning pointed to the fact that there's a goal, there's an intended destination for man. As he would labor six days and then rest, man ultimately was made to labor and then come to a final rest of supreme contentment 
blessedness and enjoyment in communion with God as creator. And the fall comes in and disrupts all of that. And so we come a little further to Genesis chapter 5. You come to this character who's called Lamech, and he has a certain son, and he gives his son a, a unique, an interesting name. He calls him Noah, which is closely related to the Hebrew word for rest. Why does he name his son Noah? He says, well, um, uh, because this one will bring us rest from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. In other words, recognizing that sin and the curse has brought about the very opposite of the rest to which man was originally appointed. Lamech is looking for God to bring salvation from that lack of rest to this endless futility of pain and toil and death and suffering. Come back to Ecclesiastes 6, and we see Kohelet and what he's wrestling with here, the vanity the utter futility and tragedy of fallen man in which all of the wealth, the success, and even long life and many children, nothing of, it, nothing of that can bring man to this intended purpose of real blessing and rest in the presence of God. And so we come to verse 7, and we have now toil without fullness. Toil without fullness. This is another perspective on basically the same problem, but all the toil of man is for his mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied. This is a, another proverbial saying. It basically says, a man labors to meet his needs, to put food in his mouth, so to speak, but his appetite's not satisfied. You always end up being hungry again, right? So there's no end in sight. And yet the application here is, is much broader than just physical appetite. The idea here in the text literally says his life is not filled. So the observation, again, is that there's no end in sight. The goal's not being reached. Man is always looking for something more. In light of that, he'll say, what advantage has the wise man over the fool, and what does the poor man have who knows how to conduct himself before the living? Think of the wise man. Again, if we think of this in scriptural terms. We think of this in the terms of, of wisdom literature like Proverbs. The wise man knows how to live and to make good decisions. And usually the wisdom of uh, the wise man is a huge advantage because at least in principle, the man who's wise, who lives wisely, will experience blessing and will have good things, and the fool creates hardship for himself. To go back again to the man who has everything he could possibly want and is going to live a long time and have lots of children, you might say, he must be a wise man to have all that. So you have the wise man acting wisely, doing things like working diligently, saving carefully, doing all these other things to create good circumstances and security and so on. And yet Kohelet looks at the big picture of things and has this question, what's the real advantage in the end? His wealth, his long life, and his honor, whatever else comes to him in the world cannot bring him to rest. The parallels the poor man who knows how to conduct himself, which would imply, again, he has wisdom to improve his circumstances. But in the end, Kohelet thinks this is all vanity. If you don't have a life that's filled, and then at the end of the day, or at the end of the life, you're going the same place as everyone else. It all ends in the grave. 
What's the real advantage? Was it all worth it? And in, in, the thought is still there right in the forefront as well, that death is the great leveler. That death is going to be the spoiler that cancels out everything else. Every other perceived advantage on earth, because the rich man and the poor man end up in the same place. And in fact, verse 9, which says, Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite. This is a, a slightly difficult verse of translation that quite possibly is saying something like this, the experience of life in the present is better than death or the passing away of life and what comes to the grave. And his conclusion is this also is vanity and striving after wind. It is not ultimately satisfying as the answer to some ultimate good to arriving at some destination. I would suggest in some ways the dilemma that Kohelet is wrestling with, the observation he's, he's making here is really just the awful reality of life for lost and sinful and fallen man outside of Christ. Because whether wealthy or poor, the unbeliever who is outside of Christ can never quite arrive at the real goal of the real enjoyment of the good that God provides. It can never come to rest. The rest for which we were made. And he is ever discontented and ultimately empty and ultimately experiencing a big void in heart and soul. And he's headed for the grave rich and poor alike. As the bumper sticker I once saw said, he who dies with the most toys still dies. The person who dies young, the person who lives many years, the person who lives a life of relative enjoyment and frivolity and has a good time, the person who lives in struggle and turmoil and misery, we all end up in the same place. from an earthly perspective. That's the grave. But there's a terrible truth revealed in the Scriptures that when death comes to the unbeliever who is outside of Christ, the state of unrest, the lack of rest, the unfulfillment, the emptiness, the longing will only be finalized and consummated forever and ever. It's one of the ways... Certainly not the only way, but one of the ways that Scripture does, describes the awful judgment of God upon the wicked in eternity is that there's no rest ever. Isaiah 57, 21, there is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. I, Revelation chapter 14 that says the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. They have no rest. Day or night, these worshipers of the beast and its image and whoever receives the mark of its name. There's no rest. So that to fail to come and find rest in this life in Jesus 
is to find no rest, and in fact, the very opposite of rest for all eternity. But before we're done with chapter 6, which will mark about the halfway point of the book of Ecclesiastes, one further observation about man's reality, and we might call this the arguing of a lost cause. Whatever has come to be has already been named, and it is known what man is, and that he is not able to dispute with one stronger than he. The more words, the more vanity, and what advantage is the advantage to man? So verse 10 is using creation language about naming. God named everything that he created, which is a demonstration of God's sovereignty and authority as the creator. And indeed, everything has been named, and God knows what man is. No one's able to dispute with him. That's the, the one who's stronger than he. It's God. In other words, he would say here, there's also no use and no benefit arguing with God about your life circumstances. That seems to be the gist of what the writer's saying here. In a way, it's almost a cynical view of God's sovereignty. See, I'm seeing this great evil under the sun, and it's all part of God's sovereignty, and you can't change it. And as well, God's sovereignty introduces this note of uncertainty for man who knows what is good for man while he lives his few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow. And who can tell a man what will be after him under the sun? There's all these open-ended questions that we can't arrive at by our own wisdom, that worldly wisdom doesn't give us the answers to. We're reliant upon God. And in the end, left dependent upon a sovereign God and his revealed truth. And in that, there's an application to take from this text, even in the midst of this sort of lost cause argument, where he says there's, you know, the more words, the more vanity. In other words, the more you talk and, and argue with God, the more it's just a lost cause, right? Arguing with God's not a winning proposition. But the application, the lesson to take from that is then be content and trust in the Lord. And to know that for the believer in Jesus, God's sovereignty is a source of contentment and peace. If we are believers in Christ, we realize that God has ordained the days of our lives, the circumstances in which we live, and this God who is incomprehensibly great beyond us, who has created all things, ordained all things, who sovereignly governs all things, is our God, our Father, and our Savior, and so we ought to be content in that which He has ordained for us. There's an incredible benefit in just practicing contentment. And we should realize as well that having wealth, possessions, worldly success, anything else this world can offer, number one, it's not going to fulfill the real need of our heart. Number two, it's not the end. It's not the final destination. So Jesus encourages us and admonishes us with words like, don't be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body and what you will put on is not life more than food and the body more than clothing. The Apostle Paul in Philippians 4, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. You realize that to have contentment 
by faith in Jesus Christ and faith in the goodness of a sovereign God is of more value than all the wealth this world could give you. And yet it's a rare and elusive gift, real contentment. And we've got to practice it. We've got to nurture it by faith in Christ. What is the destination? How do I know when I've arrived? The destination is rest. It is blessedness in fulfillment, ultimately in the presence of a glorious and gracious God. That would be heaven. But it's only found through Jesus Christ and the redemption that is in Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins to redeem a people for himself, to redeem us out of futility, discontent, restlessness, emptiness. So Jesus issues the gracious invitation, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and lowly in heart. You will find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. It's the, in some ways the distinctive mark of the believer in Jesus Christ that under the deepest kinds of affliction, and turmoil, and trial, and suffering, the believer in Christ can still find joy, peace, and contentment. And a peace that passes understanding because it comes from Christ. Because our rest is in Jesus. It's not in our earthly circumstances. Our destination is to find peace and rest in the presence and glory of God, free from sin and the fall and the effects of it and everything else that goes with life in this fallen world. We will have arrived when we're in glory. Meanwhile, however we live, in this in-between, right? We still live in a world that's got a lot of futility. And we wrestle with the sinful corruption of our own sinful hearts. But even now, we can begin to enjoy the destination in part. We do that when we practice contentment. Biblical, faith-filled contentment. Jesus Trusting in Christ, trusting in the Lord, what He's ordained for our lives. And knowing that He knows what's good for us. He's the one who's working out His purpose to bring us to eternal good. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You today for Your love, Your mercy to sinful people, fallen guilty, deserving of your wrath and punishment. 
that you sent your son to die for sinners, to bear the wrath of God in our place, to be raised up into glorious resurrection life, to be the source of life, righteousness, joy, and peace to all who trust in Christ. Father, help us today to practice contentment. We confess that we are often discontented and grumbling and complaining foolishly. Help us to rest from the striving after vain things of this life. To labor with contentedness, to be those people who find joy even in the the toil the works that you've given us to do because they're to your glory. To live life with contentedness, peace and joy in Jesus, and thereby to glorify your name. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.